Well, good morning. Um, I think I've mentioned in the past when I've been asked to speak, I always have this uh, feeling of gratitude that anybody shows up. Um, but it's sort of uh, the nightmare come true now. But I am glad to be here this morning. We had a lot of excitement at our house this week. Our neighbor was removing some big stumps from his yard. And uh, one of the roots ran clear under the fence into our yard. And as they pulled it out, they ruptured the gas line and tore up a fence and our irrigation system. And uh, so we had fire trucks and police cars and, and uh, people come knocking at the door telling us not to light our barbecue. And um, PG&E spent about eight hours uh, reattaching everything, putting in a new meter and fixing everything. And the next morning, they broke it again. And so we had two days of inconvenience. We didn't have to evacuate, no serious damage, but it was an exciting week. So again, good morning. Our message this morning comes from a story in the book of Mark. And I'm gonna read uh, the story from the message uh, translation or paraphrase, and I will use that for most of the uh, sermon today. So it's Mark 9, 14 to 29. When they came back down the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a huge crowd around them and the religious scholars cross-examining them. As soon as the people in the crowd saw Jesus, admiring excitement stirred them. They ran and greeted him. He asked, what's going on? What's all the commotion? A man out of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my mute son made speechless by a demon to you. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and goes stiff as a board. I told your disciples, hoping they could deliver him, but they couldn't. Jesus said, what a generation, no sense of God. How many times do I have to go over these things? How much longer do I have to put up with this? Bring the boy here. They brought him. When the demon saw Jesus, it threw the boy into a seizure, causing him to writhe on the ground and foam at the mouth. He asked the boy's father, how long has this been going on? Ever since he was a little boy, many times it pitches him into fire or the river to do away with him. If you can do anything, do it. Have a heart to help us. Jesus said, if, there are no ifs among believers, anything can happen. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than the father cried, then I believe, help me with my doubts. Seeing the crowd was forming fast, Jesus gave the vile, vile spirit its marching orders. Dumb and deaf spirit, I command you out of him and stay out. Screaming and with much thrashing about, it left. The boy was pale as a corpse, so people started saying he's dead. But Jesus, taking his hand, raised him up. The boy stood up. After arriving back home, the disciples cornered Jesus and asked, why couldn't we throw the demon out? He answered, there is no way to get rid of this kind of demon except by prayer. Immediately prior to this incident, Jesus had taken his inner circle of disciples, uh, three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountaintop, and he was transfigured before them. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was put aside, and the disciples were able to see the glory of his deity. The three disciples saw Moses and Elijah and listened as they talked with Jesus about his mission and his impending death on the cross. They even heard the voice of God the Father as he said, this is my beloved son, hear him. The disciples must have been almost beside themselves with excitement as they came down the mountain. 
They certainly did not understand everything that they saw and heard or what happened to them, but they were no doubt full of joy. Suddenly the disciples find themselves thrust back into the gritty real world. When Jesus and the disciples came down from the mountain, they find the other nine disciples engaged in an argument with some scribes. It was a noisy scene. The nine disciples who remained behind in the valley were being heckled and mocked by a group of smug and sneering scribes. It seems that a desperate father had brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus for healing. But when he arrived, Jesus had already gone up on the mountain, so he asked the disciples to heal his son. They had been unable to cast out the demon, and the scribes are contemptuous for their lack of power. No doubt the scribes were delighting in the failure of the disciples and were using the opportunity to put down the Savior. They were probably using the failure of the disciples to argue that Jesus was also lacking in power. On the basis of the described symptoms, it appears at least that the boy was epileptic. In the Greek language, the word used basically means to be moonstruck. It was believed by some in that time period that certain strange behavior was caused by the moon. It was used to describe behaviors that included convulsions and seizure. Mark adds that the son is also mute and deaf. But the boy's problem is not just neurological, it's demonic. In your imagination, let's look at the scene and imagine yourself as one of the participants in this drama. First, there were the scribes, the religious professionals, the cynics. We told you so, we told you so, they sneer. Your master pretended to give you power to cast out devils, but you can't do it. Those people you pretended to heal they were not really possessed. There was never much wrong with them in the first place. They would have gotten better on their own. They just reacted to the excitement. Even if the so-called prophet you follow casts out devils, it is because he's a devil himself. You can't cast out devils. Go ahead, the scribes say to Andrew. Cast it out. You, Philip, what about you? Why don't you give it a try? The scribes were seemingly unconcerned about the suffering of the boy or his father, but they rejoiced at the disciples' failure to heal. Then there's the poor father, dejected and downhearted. I brought him to you in faith. I believed that you could heal him, but you have failed. Are you all just frauds? Isn't my son worthy of healing? You have broken my heart. I wish I had not come at all to be embarrassed, to be made a public spectacle. The father in the story relates how he had for years dealt with the affliction of his son. When one deals with something for a long time, whether it is an illness or addiction, it's easy to lose hope that anything or anyone can help. Imagine, if you will, what it would have been like to be in the father's place. While others are teaching their son a trade, he is trying to keep his son alive. Problems like this affect the entire family. In fact, family becomes defined by their problem. Other people describe them as the family with the demoniac son. Others in the community would feel uncomfortable at worst and be unsafe to be around the boy. They would be best to keep their distance. Ultimate problems like this would isolate the entire family. The boy's condition demanded constant attention. This father could not leave his son alone for even a minute because he, he knew, who knew when the next attack would come? 
He had to remain on alert and on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He was desperate and tired, and his appeal in the second part of verse 22 reflects both. If you can do anything, do it. Have a heart and help us. Some commentators are critical of the Father for his weak faith, but it seems to me that it took extraordinary faith for him to reach out and seek healing for his son in light of the situation. And then there are the disciples, and they must have looked pitiful indeed. In spite of their earnest efforts, they were unable to heal. They don't know how to account for it. They had been able to cure others, but not this boy. The disciples had earlier been successful, but now they were powerless. The failure was not because they did not try. On the contrary, I believe they tried, they did their best. They tried hard, but they still could not. It must have seemed strange to them. When Jesus called his disciples, as described in Matthew 10, Jesus gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He had given them the commission to preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had given them the power to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons. They had been given the power to do this, and now the power is gone. And is what is even more frustrating is that they'd already been doing it. They had done it before. They had participated in miracles just a short time ago. And now all of a sudden, they can't do it. What's gone wrong? Has God deserted them? Has he withdrawn his power? And then the last group is the thrill-seeking crowd made up of the curious. Some were there to be entertained. They came to hear the prophet and maybe see, see a healing or some or some magic. And what do they get? Failure by Jesus' disciples and continued bickering between the disciples and the scribes. And just as today, the crowd judged Jesus by the actions of his disciples. The father pours out his heart and Jesus heals his son. This is one of those stories you'd like to have go on a little longer. What must the homecoming have been like for the man and his son as he returned to the other members of the family and his community. There are many things we could talk about from this story. Mustard seed faith, relocating mountains, the impact of faith and prayer on healing and miracles. But I want to focus on something else. The story has always seemed to me to be about disappointment, a father's disappointment in the disciples for failing to heal his son. The disciples' disappointment in being unable to heal Jesus' disappointment in the crowd that followed him. And if we're honest, by extension, our own disappointment with how God acts or fails to act in our lives. The subject is not an easy one to discuss, especially for Christians. It is a topic that many of us try to deny. I will be talking about the dark side of our faith experience, the part we try to cover up and, or otherwise refuse to admit. And yet, when we are all alone, it is very real and troubling. I want to look at the heartbreak of disappointment, and specifically our feelings of disappointment of God. Disappointment has a way of breaking our hearts. Sometimes it may be a single blow that sucks the air out of your lungs and leaves us wondering just what happened. Not just the minor storms of life, but the typhoons and hurricanes that strike us. At other times, it can be a series of 
seemingly small unanswered prayers, small disappointments, but they accumulate over time and undermine our faith and cause us to cause us to wonder if God really cares about our everyday lives. Can God be trusted with our big prayers if so many of the small ones go unanswered? We all grow through the valley from time to time in our Christian walk. I don't believe that there's anyone viewing this this morning that can honestly say that his or her life as a Christian has only been ups. All of us have walked through the valleys of life. All of us have been hurt. We've all felt the pain of disappointment. Disappointment is a, is a very harsh word. It speaks of failure, of not measuring up, of frustration. The word sits down right on your heart and deflates it. Disappointment is defined as the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations, or as Proverbs 13:12 puts it, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And whether or not we've actually vocalized it, inside we would all admit that we have one time or another been disappointed with God. In one way or another, we've all felt that God has let us down. I'll be honest with you, the message is also difficult because I don't think there are any easy answers to this, what we face here. I'm not going to give you three easy steps to avoid disappointment with God. I've yet to discover them myself, but I hopefully through our study, we can get some hints. Secondly, it's a hard topic because looking at failure could dampen someone's faith. But please be assured that this, intended, this is intended to be a message of hope and promise. Our disappointment with God can spring from many situations. That relationship we have been praying for has not been restored. The sickness that we've been struggling with has not gone away. The people we've been we're desperate to see come to faith in Christ, are more apathetic to spiritual things than the year before. The job didn't come through. The church hasn't grown. Although we still have faith, we're somewhat disappointed with God because life has not turned out as we expected. You have prayed earnestly for the recovery of someone who is diagnosed with a terminal illness. You had faith that God would heal according to his word, but after going through agonizing months of pleading, watching, and waiting, your loved one just continues to weaken and eventually dies. Your earnest prayers are not answered. You pray for direction in your life, and you follow where you thought he was leading you, and suddenly it all goes wrong. Why doesn't Jesus answer all our prayers? The sort of standard pat answer is, he does. Sometimes he just says no. But that response gives us little comfort when we're suffering. All things work together for good is no more comforting either, though it is true. There's no sin in feeling disappointment with God, but we do need to take care how we handle it. Disappointment can lead to despair or bitterness. We can become cynical and pessimistic and always expect the worst. Unchecked disappointment can rob us of our joy. It can also erect a roadblock to whatever God wants to accomplish in and through us. We want to know why. Why doesn't he give us what we ask for in the light of the promises of John 15, that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you? As believers, we must come to terms with these 3 a.m. questions that keep us awake. God, 
Where were you? God, if you love me so much, why didn't you intervene? God, why didn't you warn me not to get involved? God, why do I have to go through this? God, why don't you answer my prayers? God, why do you seem so far away, so hidden, so silent? God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Often people considering questioning God to be inappropriate, sacrilegious, ungodly, and even dangerous. They may see any attempt to work through honest negative feelings as a lack of faith, weakness, or rebellion. We usually find it much easier to voice disappointment with ourselves and others than to speak of dissatisfaction with our Heavenly Father. It's hard to say it out loud. I'm disappointed with you, God. It feels wrong, even blasphemous. Everything around us tells us that the Christian life is supposed to be one of victory. No one wants to express a feeling that God has let us down. We want to say the right thing, the spiritual thing, the religious thing. So we hide from our own feelings of being let down. But any honest reading of the Psalms or Job or Jeremiah or Lamentations, we can see that the prophets and poets have expressed their frustration and even anger with God at times. God is big enough and his love is fierce enough to deal with anything we feel or we must face. We need to acknowledge the truth. Life can deeply disappoint us. God's word doesn't shy away from this, so why should we? Disappointment with God is almost as old as time itself. Throughout the scriptures and in the biographies of the great men and women of faith, we find countless examples of believers in God who experienced disappointment in him. Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph was sold into slavery and unjustly imprisoned. Prophets were ill-treated. Surely Christians were paying, praying for Stephen's safety, yet he was stoned. Others prayed for the release of James, Jesus' brother, yet he was beheaded. Some must have been praying for Paul's relief from prison, but he was also executed. Even Jesus, the Son of God, was not immune. When he was carrying the full weight of the world's sin upon himself as he hung upon the cross of Calvary, darkness swept over the face of the earth, blotting out the brightness of the sun. In despair, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Father was silent. One of the most disappointed people in the Bible was Job. You all know Job's story. Job was an upright and blameless man. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had many servants and was considered the greatest man in the people of the East. And in a moment, it was all taken away. Most of the book of Job is a debate about the nature of suffering. When we get to the end of the book, Job, Job makes his last cry to God in Job 29 and 30, and I'll read a little bit of those two chapters. Job 29, 1 to 6. Oh, how I long for the good old days when God took such very good care of me. He always held a lamp before me, and I walked through the dark by its light. Oh, how I miss those golden years when God's friendship graced my home, when the Mighty One was still by my side, and my children were all around me, when everything was going my way and nothing seemed too difficult. His cry continues in Job 30. And now my life drains out. 
as suffering seizes and grips me hard. Night gnaws at my bones, the pain never lets up. I am tied hand and foot, my neck is in a noose, I twist and turn. Thrown face down in the muck, I am a muddy mess, inside and out. I shout for help, God, and get nothing, no answer. I stand to face you in protest, and you give me a blank stare. You've turned into my tormentor. You slap me around, knock me about. You raised me up so I was riding high, and then you dropped me and I crashed. I know that you're determined to kill me. Put me six feet under. What did I do to deserve this? Job was not only disappointed, he was angry and he blamed God for everything that was going on. God answers Job out of the whirlwind in the next several chapters. You could probably think of many wonderful things that God could have told Job and the comfort he could have provided. But his response is basically, I am God and you are not. He never answers Job's question of why. He only asks Job to continue to trust. So disappointment, our disappointment, is not unique. It's not a unique experience just to the current day. What is important is a reaction when we feel disappointed. Our initial human reaction to disappointment is to ask why and who's responsible for the situation we're in. Many conclude that we find ourselves in difficult circumstances because it's us. We've done something wrong. There are some people who say this is the only, the one and only answer to the question of why we find ourselves in stressful situations. Because we deserve it. If you're living for Jesus, we reason, things are going to go our way. But if we have sin in our life, if our faith isn't strong enough, bad things are going to happen to us. Yes, maybe sometimes that is the case, but not always. There are plenty of other possible reasons why bad things happen, and this is not the only answer. So troubles can occur because we've done something wrong sometimes, but not always. The second possible answer kind of goes along with the first. If it's not our fault, it must be someone else's. If only he or she had not done this or he and she had done that, my life would be pain-free. Everything would be fine. Troubles can occur because of another's actions. Sometimes, but not always. Maybe Satan is attacking you. Job was a good and blameless man who pleased God, who experienced a life of happiness and prosperity, but who also lost everything he had because Satan attacked him. Troubles do happen because Satan is attacking you, sometimes, but not always. Or maybe trials come because God is testing or teaching you. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about the testing and teaching he received. 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 7-10. Because of the extravagance of those revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angels did his best to get me down, and he, in fact, did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift and begged God to remove move it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was clear it was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take my limitations in stride and with good cheer, 
these limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, oppression, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Bad things may happen because God's testing and teaching you, sometimes, but not always. More often, though, that we like to admit there's a lot of randomness in life. Trouble just occurs because life happens. We're living in a sin-filled world, world where God's order has been disrupted, and things just happen because it is life. Matthew 5.45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes bad things just happen. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's no reason. Whatever, we sure can't figure it out. Bad things happen in life because life happens. But we shouldn't confuse God with our physical life. We think because God is fair, life should be fair. And if we confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, we are setting up ourselves for crushing disappointment. Our relationship with God needs to be developed apart from our life circumstances. If you doubt this, read the Gospels again. Was life fair to Jesus? When Jesus began his ministry, people hooted. Can anything good come from Nazareth? An ethnic joke. His neighbors once ran him out of town and tried to kill him. His own family questioned his sanity. In the end, he was deserted by his friends and his life traded for that of a traitor. No one is exempt from tragedy or disappointment. God himself was not exempt. Jesus offers no one immunity to the unfairness of life, but whether rather a way through it. Bad things happen because life happens, but you can always trust God, always. Beyond the why and who's to blame question, disappointment impacts how we view God. Many people come to, come to the conclusion that God is not real. When faced with disappointment, we can conclude that God is unfair, God is silent, God is hidden. We can choose to view God as a cruel deity who delights in our suffering. When we choose to believe this way, we usually wind up believing that God is not. Our disappointment with God can lead us to believe what the Bible has to say about a loving, nurturing, responding God is all false, just wishful pie-in-the-sky thinking and ramblings. Because we can't see the evidence we need to validate the, such claims, unfortunately, this has been the decision of many and many are stuck there. The second conclusion we can come to is that all God, although God is real, the problem again must be us. This is perhaps the general consensus of many believers. There must be some sin or defect in our faith. That is the reason behind our suffering we are experiencing. God is chiding us and trying to teach us. And generally, the supposed lesson we are to learn is simply to have more faith, and then problems will disappear. But that is not what God promised. Faith is a key that draws us closer in a, to a closer relationship with him, not something that release, releases, excuse me, not something that erases all of our pain. I believe that God's primary goal for us as his children is to move us to the place where we trust in him and nothing else. He wants us to be completely dependent on himself and he will use whatever means to bring us to that place. God is not the author 
of all our trying and disappointing circumstances in our lives, but he is able to turn any trouble we face and heartbreak we have into his glory. When we face disappointment with God, we need to remember that it is an age-old pro problem, just part of life. But also remember that we have an ageless God who is able to give us strength and to overcome our weakness. The answer he gives us is to demonstrate unwavering faith in the face of our disappointments and keep believing that he will come and renew our strength so we can walk and not become weary. Disappointments will come, but God gives us the strength to keep on walking even when it hurts. I want to close with some promises of hope and comfort. The Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. There are many experiences in life that can break our hearts, such as deaths, hurts, failures, missed opportunities, and loss. At such times, we may be lonely and feel forsaken by others, but the wonderful promise is that the Lord is close to us at such times. We must realize the close presence of God and allow him to minister to us and to heal our broken hearts. God is a specialist in healing and mending broken hearts. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord heals our broken hearts and wants us to minister to others who are going through the same experience in their lives. Whenever we go through an experience of brokenness in our lives, we are in a unique position to be used by the Lord to minister healing and restoration to the other brokenhearted folks around us. We can allow the Lord to use our wounds in our lives to minister healing to others. We must allow the Lord to heal our wounds, and then we can use that healing experience to reach out to others and enable them to experience the same healing in their lives. Instead of mourning over our heartbreaking experiences, we must see the possibility of using them to become a channel of healing to others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses and our disappointments. During his life on earth, he went through all the trials and tribulations and temptations that we go through in our lives, and he understands our pain and our sorrow our humiliation, our temptations, and yes, our disappointments. Therefore, we can approach him confidently in our times of brokenness because he understands and sympathizes with our weakness, and he is ready to shower his grace and mercy on us. Isaiah 53, 3-5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmaries and carried our sorrows. Yet we are considered him stricken by God. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Hebrews 4:15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, 
just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul describes our lives as perfume. We are the aroma of Christ, even in our pain and brokenness. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So I stated at the beginning, I have no solutions for the disappointment you made me feeling in your lives. But I do have a few hints. First, be honest with yourself about disappointments, about how you feel. Read through the Psalms and see how David and the other poets were honest with their feelings. Secondly, verbalize in your prayers and to another believer any anger or disappointment you were experiencing towards God. The greatest gift we can give someone suffering pain or disappointment is simply to be available, to be present in their lives. We are called on to serve people even when it might make us uncomfortable. We are called to stand alongside those in the midst of their anxiety and fear. Thirdly, recognize in our lives that difficult times will come, that disappointment is always lurking, but understand that we have a choice of going through these times with God or without him, but go through the situations we will. And lastly, focus in times of trial on the future and eternity. As the heroes of Hebrews 11 looked for the city of God, that was waiting for them. So Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. Each one of these people of faith died not yet having in hand what was promised, but still believing. How did they do it? They saw it way off in the distance, waved their greeting and accepted the fact that they were transients in this world. People who live this way make it plain they're looking for their true home. If they were homesick for the old country, they could have gone back anytime they wanted, but they were after a better country than that heaven country. You can see why God is so proud of them and has a city waiting for them. Thank you and may God bless you this week. Um, we've seen a lot of disruption and um, anger and I think you know, it would be appropriate not only to close this worship service um, but uh, you know pray in a special way for our country and uh, uh, the Lord's peace to settle over uh, so I'll start in mail. Maybe you can close then. So, right. Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word that we've received from you through our brother Jim. Thank you, Lord, for all the things that you mean to us. Thank you for guiding us, for protecting us. Thank you for even the, um, the deepest valleys in our lives. We think of several among us, Lord, who are going through their deepest valleys or even a deep valley in their lives. Think of Carrie that's recuperating from an injury, a serious injury. We think of um, Ivanette, same. And we think of others, Lord, that have been sick or are recovering. We think of the many people that are still recovering from uh, this coronavirus and those that have lost their lives, and those that are grieving as a result of loved ones having lost their lives. 
We think also, Lord, of the, of the pain and the anger that, are, that many in our country are experiencing because of unfortunate events that have happened, which shows how unkind and how cruel people could be to other people, individuals. Lord, these are the things that can cause us sometimes to question why these things happen. But we thank you, O Lord, that uh, despite all of these things that happen, Lord, we know that you are still in control. Please, Lord, calm our nation down and help us to see goodness in people despite all the uh, unfortunate events that happen around us. And, good, uh, and, 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 and even that, Lord, and besides, I mean, on top of all of that, your goodness as our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together. We don't have all the answers. We know in the good times, um, we bless your name. It's a little harder when things are difficult, but help us like Job to even in the face of disaster to be able to bless your name when things are not going well. We ask that your peace descend on our country, on those that are struggling with their anger and their issues ways can be found peacefully to resolve some issues. Again, we thank you and we ask you to bless our church and all of its ministries in your wonderful name. Amen.